the cancer of Trumpism that didn't start with him has totally metastasized. And now we don't have a single target. We have Trumpism in every corner of every state legislature besides a couple of blue ones. We have it uh, deeply embedded in our Congress. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Yasmin Raji, the new executive director of Swing Left. I really enjoyed getting to hear about her path to the job and why she was so interested in running that organization. Her career includes working as an organizer for Obama and for the IAF, working with Mobilize America, co-founding the Resistance School, working as political director at Planned Parenthood, and recently in the federal government at the Department of Treasury. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Yasmin at Swing Left. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Yasmin, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Thank you so much for having me on today. Um, I'm Yasmin Raji. Uh, I am the new executive director of Swing Left, uh, and I'm coming to this work having spent my entire career organizing. Most recently, I was serving in the Biden administration uh, as a senior advisor um, at the Treasury Department, where I was focused on the implementation of the American Rescue Plan. And before that, I was the national political director at Planned Parenthood Action Fund. And I won't bore you with all of the things before that, but all roads lead back to organizing in all of the great organizations that I was lucky to, to work in before that as well. Well, I'm not going to let you get away with not talking about them because there aren't that that many, and I'm interested in all of them. Let me just get enough of your biography to let people really become acquainted with you. Tell me a little about where you grew up and your education. Sure. Um, So I grew up in Northern California uh, in Palo Alto, so just outside of San Francisco. And I grew up to two Iranian immigrants uh, who moved to the Bay Area soon after the Iranian Revolution um, and um, spent my, you know, all the way through high school there in an all Democratic town. There was one Republican in my high school, or one out Republican, I should say, that wrote an op-ed in the, in the, you know, high school newspaper about how, you know, alienated she felt as the one Republican. So just very progressive area as the Bay Area remains. Um, and went to college. Um, I went to Penn. I went to school in Philadelphia where I was also surrounded by Democrats. So I cared a lot about a lot of issues, but most issues sort of centered around issues of inequality in schools and the healthcare system and the immigration system. Um, and to me, having grown up around Democrats everywhere, 
those issues were non-electoral. These were like activist issues and these were justice issues and service issues. I was in college during the 2008 primary and Philadelphia was a hot spot. And so really it was that year where my kind of activism and passion for confronting issues of inequality that I really cared about, um, where I kind of connected the dots, not really through my own volition. My friends sort of yelled at me that I was a big armchair you know, hypocrite of complaining a lot and not doing a whole lot. I connected the dots uh, thanks to their support that the election was going to be really, really critical that year for every issue that I cared about. So I started volunteering on the Obama campaign, ended up joining the campaign out in Ohio. And then really ever since then, I've been organizing in a mix of elections and advocacy and the sort of space in between. I think that was the beginning of me really understanding, A, that every issue, even in the bluest parts of the country, um, is deeply, deeply linked to the balance of power um, that happens through elections. It's decided through elections that it's not necessarily it's not necessary to be excited about a particular candidate or think a candidate is perfect. But what's really important and motivating is investing in grassroots. And that was, I think, what was um, transformative to me about the Obama campaign that stayed with me ever since is how do you invest in real people to change elections and people who will never come to the Beltway, will never do politics for a living, uh, but can change the course of history? Let me ask you to be a little specific about that. So you're in Ohio for the Obama campaign. What's something that you took away from that in particular that you think you carry forward? My turf uh, was a mix of really uh, rural parts of Northeast Ohio and some what we called then micropolitan. So the you know former industrial, smaller towns, the former glass capital was sort of the center of my turf. And whether it was in the rural sort of more agricultural areas or in those post-industrial areas, I was organizing with folks who'd felt really left behind and rightly so. I mean, their economy had left them behind a long time ago. A lot of those folks really did not see themselves as leaders or as talented or as skilled. They just were people who worked, who had families, who in some cases went to church or whatever the case may be. And to see a campaign that was, you know, that taught me as an early, early organizer to identify the skills and talents and leadership skills that those folks had, I was you know, my early 20s, like I had nothing to teach them. I had been trained like three weeks before I was training these <laughs> other. So it was not about like transferring knowledge or skills because I didn't have much of those, but identifying those talents, identifying the kind of raw leadership in folks that had been a part of their communities for years and years and years, and how to tap into that to then move a lot of voters' minds. A lot of persuasion was our, our focus in that election. And also to motivate people who never imagined themselves involved in politics, to motivate those folks to just take a leap and try for the first time. And so, you know, that area of Ohio, thanks to those leaders who didn't self-identify as leaders, but really were really working hard to knock on every door and call every friend and sort of sing from the, the songbooks about this election, that particular election, um, we won by just a couple points that year. And this is a district that I think this is, you know, a bigger conversation we can have about the importance of investing every cycle, because that area that we won, I think it was two points or two and a half points that we, we won by, um, ended up going for Trump a handful of years later by about 12 points. And that to me is, um, it's sort of the symbol of, the leaders are still there. They're still on the ground. They're still 
unfortunately struggling from the same um, really tough landscape that they're in economically in Ohio that remains a place that we need more imagination for how we sort of reinvest in economically. But um, but those same folks we need to keep investing in to stay active as leaders. And that's why every step of my journey has remained centered on organizing because I think organizing takes a generation of work to sustain those wins. And Swing Left, I think, is front and center in how do we continue to, to invest in communities cycle after cycle after cycle and invest in those leaders cycle after cycle so that it's not just kind of one-off moments that people get engaged. That strikes me as a very valuable uh, place to be, uh, given what has happened to our country and the, the move of especially non-college educated white people to the Trumpist direction that is so consequential for national policy and state policy. I noticed that you went to the Kennedy School for the master's. Was there other part of your biography in between? There were some, a couple more steps in between. I worked in, as, as we talked about, on the Obama campaign. And like I mentioned, I was really, the, what was radical for me about that campaign was uh, you know, this, this idea that ordinary people can do anything and can change history. And I wanted to understand what does that look like when you are in a place where there is not a finite election timeline, but uh, the ability to go beyond a few months or a couple years or whatever the case may be. So I went to an organization called the Industrial Areas Foundation. That's the longest standing community organizing network in the country. And I started doing congregation organizing. Um, and this was for me... Um, you know, if I if I came out of the Obama campaign thinking I understood what organizing was, uh, I was ready for a big wake up call that I had no idea. I grew up, like I mentioned, in Northern California to Iranian immigrants who are fierce atheists and are deeply, deeply non-religious. And I was spending every night of the week at either a Bible study or in a church basement talking to folks about how they translated their faith into action. And then I, every weekend I was spending my Saturday nights and all day Sunday in different church services. And so it was for me, um, you know, if organizing is about really teaching people how to center their own values and their own communities in the process, and organizers are often outsiders as I was, there was no way I could be an insider here because I wasn't religious myself. And I certainly was not from Iowa and then Texas, which is where I was organizing. So we worked on local and state issues and I think the dual experiences of working on the Obama campaign and then organizing with the IAF, I think, are the two most formative experiences of my career in just setting the foundation for what organizing looks like for the immediate term in elections and in the long term in, you know, campaigns around. We were working on workforce development issues in Iowa that we started then and that continue to be, you know, they're continuing to organize around institutionalizing those workforce uh, projects now a decade later. I did that work. I moved back to the Bay Area after that work um, and uh, started, I did a brief stint in the private sector, which was not my love language. It was really sad for me to not be organizing. <laughs> I spent my, my nights and weekends organizing as a volunteer, this time for my own community in the Iranian American community, and really took the things that I knew from Obama and the things I knew from the IAF and sort of merged them into organizing trainings in my own community. And that passion as a volunteer turned into a full-time job. So I became the field director for a group called the National Iranian American Council, worked with them for several years and helped them build out their C4 and co-founded that called Mac Action. And then 
I reached a point um, in the buildup, we were organizing a lot, mostly online, uh, because it was for Iranian Americans all across the country, it to push Congress to support the JCPOA or the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action of the Iran deal. And I just sort of realized I'd run out of ideas. Not that I wasn't passionate about what I was doing, not that I wasn't motivated. I just literally did not have any more skills than what I was offering. And I felt like I was surrounded by brilliant policy people and I couldn't learn how to be a better organizer from policy folks. I needed to be around organizers who'd been doing it for longer than I had and had more creativity, more ideas, more skills. So that's why I went to the Kennedy School was really because I felt like I run out of tools in my toolbox and I needed to, if I wanted to scale the work that I was doing, I'd need to learn a lot more. I've talked to some folks from Industrial Areas Foundation. I know it's like one of the centers of organizing in the country. Kennedy School was such a entirely different world, I think, than you had been in. What was the most important thing that you took from your time there? You know, I think uh, there is a sense that a brand like Harvard is uh, a place where the smartest people go. And I think very quickly I learned the smartest people I'd known were not the ones that were at Harvard. So that was like sort of speaking behind the curtain and seeing some of the the biggest, the the wisest and most intellectually brilliant people I had met had often been the grassroots leaders, the pastors, the folks on the ground. And of course, there is this brand of the Kennedy School, and I learned a lot. But it was important for me, I think, to see that it isn't like there's this incredibly smart group of people like hiding away in these institutions that are inaccessible. There are people who are doing really big things. So I think that was one thing. And so while I was at the Kennedy School was when the 2016 election happened. And so my friends and I, who were the organizers and activists, or some of them on campus, we thought about like, what is the ad value that we have by being in an institution that people perceive as a place where, you know, all of the smartest ideas come from, et cetera, even if that is not the case. And so we used our Harvard brand and campus and network and access and ability to reach folks around the country to start something called Resistance School, which was online trainings for people who are new to politics, new to engagement. A lot of those folks were early swing left volunteers that we ended up working really closely with and using Harvard's campus as a university for all, really. I I remember hearing about that in 2017 when I was getting going on this podcast and I was hunting down anything with the word resistance in it. I don't think I ended up connecting, but I'm glad to catch up with you now. Yeah, we can search our inboxes. We might have had emails with each other uh, in those early days. It's all sort of a blur. Yeah. So tell me about like the team that that started that and what you accomplished. Yeah, so it was a a team of students. um, Like I mentioned, we were a mix of organizers, people who cared about campaigns and things like that. And we got together after my professor and one of my mentors, a man named Richard Parker, who's an incredible longtime activist and historian. Uh, He was the first class that I went to after the 2016 election. And it was more of a, a therapy session than a class because we were all trying to understand what had happened on election night. Um, And he pulled me and a couple others aside afterwards. And I was, you know, not interested in doing anything. I was in sort of burn it all down mode. And he pulled me aside and said, you're an organizer. You've got a day or two to cry. And then you have to think about what you want to do to step up and to lead in this moment. And so 
That was the, the agitation that I needed and that several of my friends needed. And so we got together weekly to think about what we wanted to do. And much like in the early days of what um, Ethan and the founders of Swing Left um, did as well was what is the unique ad value that we have and how can we, how can we contribute to this moment? And for us, the answer there was trainings um, because we had the ability to share our network, the things that we knew, the people that we knew, and also the access to the technology and physical space of a campus. And so that was our contribution. And, and in those early days was when I got to know Swing Left leaders, volunteer teams across the country who were tuning into those trainings. It's where I got to talk to the Swing Left staff for the first time and was really inspired, again, that is sort of related to this feeling of we're all contributing however we can. But I think what Swing Left did that from the very beginning was inspiring to me was they found ways to institutionalize the scale that many of us were experiencing at that moment and to build the beginning infrastructure for long-term sustained grassroots power. And that to me was obvious from day one, something that we sought to emulate at, at Resistance School. And that's also you know, the, the primary reason why I got really excited about the opportunity to join the Swing Left team is we're in a different political moment. And I think Swing Left has evolved in all sorts of ways, but it has never wavered from its commitment to centering grassroots, investing in grassroots, and winning the most high-impact elections. And so that's really that was really inspiring for me from the beginning. Is that Richard Parker, the guy who started Mother Jones? That's exactly the same Richard Parker. He's amazing. And his wife, Robin Parker, is an amazing activist in her own right. So they're a sort of power couple of all sorts of amazing things in the progressive movement. This is kind of jumping the gun a bit, but I want to get this question in, which is 2017, as you sort of mentioned, was its own political moment. And we were in shock and reaction to Trump winning was pretty motivated. And there was a tremendous amount of entrepreneurial activism and rejuvenation of existing groups as well. We are in a moment now that midterm slog that many incumbent presidents experience and the challenges of real governance from inflation to war to pandemic and and everything else, it is harder to motivate the team in political moments like this, even with abortion and some of the other things to react against ourselves. How do you think about grassroots leadership, activism, organizing in this moment compared to when you were doing resistance school? In 2017, all of us, whether we were new to politics, whether um, we'd been organizing for years and years, all of us had a really clear target, and that was Donald Trump. And it didn't matter that Trumpism existed long before Donald Trump was presidential candidate, let alone, you know, the nominee at that moment. It was this moment where things reached a fever pitch. And so there was a clarity of vision of, we've got to get involved in elections, we've got to focus, and we don't have a lot of time, right? Like there was a clear time horizon of the 2017 Virginia election, the midterms, and 2020. And that was a very clear linear direction that we all had to, to march in. 
And I think right now what is clearer, and it should have been clearer to us then, but um, but we were in an, in a, an emergency moment, is that you know the the cancer of Trumpism that didn't start with him has totally metastasized, and now we don't have a single target. We have Trumpism in every corner of every state legislature, besides a couple of blue ones. We have it uh, deeply embedded in our Congress. Even without Trump, everything is in sort of urgency. Do you think people grasp that? I, I think you're right. I, I, I think the medical metaphor is apt. And I think that, you know, January 6th, if nothing else, underscored how much of an emergency and certainly the hearings I was listening to one of them today, you know, just dramatizes like how much worse it was even than I imagined. It may be too soon to fairly ask you, but from your lens from Swing Left, do you think that our team, which extends to just regular people who vote with us or could vote with us, gets it? You know, there was a a piece by Masha Gessen, I want to say like a week after the 2016 election. It was in the the very early stages that really stuck with me, and it was about... um, you know, how to avoid becoming an autocracy. And, you know, she's bringing her lens as a Russian and an expert on, you know, different part of the world. And one of the, the, the pieces of advice that she had for us in that moment was to remain outraged because when you stop being outraged, it is when the autocracy has sort of taken over. And it is really hard. I thought about that all the time, 2016 till now. Me too. It is really hard to stay outraged because it's exhausting in general. It is especially exhausting in a pandemic. And so to stay outraged and to stay motivated is really hard. I mean, it's like when you hear bad news medically, like something's wrong with your liver. You get that news and you, you have a cold chill and and you can hardly cope. But then it becomes part of your life and you deal with it. Right. It's become part of our life. Remarkably, that the country has you know, right-wing authoritarian cancer, and and we can't not fight it. Totally. Organizing is very slow, patient work. Mobilizing feels really good in the moment. You know, showing up to a march feels amazing. Showing up for GOTV and then winning an election feels really amazing. But organizing is really tough. Because it's really tough, Um, It is easy to recede um, and it is really, really important that we not because, I mean, we are all seeing it right now. The reason that Roe v. Wade is no longer the law of the land is because Republicans and not just Republicans, it's extremists within the Republican Party have been organizing for 40 years. I mean, they started organizing the day that Roe v. Wade passed. They started organizing and they've appointed federal judges across the country. They've organized state legislative races. They've organized in city councils. They've organized in the Congress. The path ahead is a generational path ahead. Now that can feel very overwhelming and it can, you know, an individual person thinking about, well, they've been organizing for 40 years and they've had all these, you know, wins along the way and how the hell do I catch up? It's not about the sort of like doing that whole thing all at once. It's figuring out what is the, the size bite that one person can take in this one moment as a part of the bigger picture? And how do we multiply ourselves to have many more people stay active? So it's not that each one of us needs to be sprinting the whole time. Organizing by its nature is about 
finding other people and having those folks who have different skills, complementary skills, different talents, complementary talents, and finding more and more and more of those folks. And I think part of when I've seen in myself, when I start to feel really exhausted or drained in the organizing, first of all, I think about like, what are the things that I need to turn to, to re-energize myself? But also I often start to see that I am in part organized and part exhausted because it is just me that's doing things or it's me and the same two people. And we're not doing the talent sort of search work that is central to organizing. And in that, there's time for every person to take a break. There's a time for every person to sort of sit out for a part of a cycle. But as a collective, we cannot sit out any election or any moment. And so I think these midterms is about testing how do we make sure that all of those mobilizing moments that we've had that have been energizing in and of themselves, we are connecting those together through real organizing that is building that power for the 40 years rather than just for the next, you know, 100 days. Well, that answer and and some of the other things we've talked about are helping me understand why you are in the position that you're now starting. And, and that's heartening for me. I'm going to go back to asking you some more biographical questions. I'm just curious about this few months you took at Mobilize in in 2017 in Virginia, because I had some connection, ultimately, strangely, to that company, if that's what you're referring to. But what was that? When I was at the Kennedy School, I wrote my master's thesis about the North Carolina legislature and about how to strengthen the the candidate pipeline there. And as a part of that thesis, I got to talk to all sorts of people through sort of the multiple degrees of separation to North Carolina and also to people who were thinking about um, small d democracy in interesting ways. And as a part of that, I was introduced to Alfred Johnson and Alan Kramer, the co-founders of Mobilize America. And we just, I don't know how many hours we spent together. It felt like, you know, a few minutes, but I think it was probably half a day where we just really um, connected on a vision for how to strengthen our small d democracy and how critical state elections would be as a part of that. And the technology that Mobilize America was developing would be a key part of that. But their vision was much bigger than that. And so we started to scheme together and think about, you know, what could we do together in, in Virginia in their first test run of their earliest software. And so I joined to lead their Virginia efforts for that cycle. We were experimenting. It was the earliest stage of a, of a, of a startup uh, on a very fast growth trajectory. And so the first stop that we had after sort of hiring some staff was who are the people who are doing the election work that is going to be critical to Virginia on the ground? And the answer was swing left chapters, indivisible groups. Um, but some of those were super well organized. Some were newer. Some were really local. Some were, you know, slightly more regional. And um, our team just started meeting with those folks and thinking about, you know, some, again, longtime activists, some brand new activists. And we started thinking about, like, what were the tech gaps that were in the way of them being able to focus on going out and knocking on doors and making calls and sending texts in the places with the biggest impact. And so Mobilize was really um, in its earliest stages informed by Swing Lab volunteers who said, I don't really like the app that you all are developing. We need a web platform. So we shifted our engineers into the web platform. So it was very, very, very grassroots informed. 
And along the way, we also talk to the candidates and the campaign managers and the organizing directors about their gaps and the things that were frustrating them. And we figured out how to integrate all those things. And they all said, if it's not van integrated, we don't want it. And so I know you've, you've had your, your fingers in the NGP van birth story. And so we integrated it into the NGP van. And so all of these things were, how do you make it easy for volunteers? How do you make it easy for organizing directors and campaigns and make the process of democratic activism focused on the substance of it rather than the process of it? And anyway, so that's really where I got to know um, Swing Left. And that's um, that was very foundational. I went to go work with Alfred again at the Treasury Department. So it's remained a very big part of my life um, and, uh, and a great mentor. That's that's so interesting. One of the things that happens in this podcast is sort of dot connecting for me. And Mobilize is one of the rare, rare, super rare examples of a useful technology and politics turning into a very valuable company that NGPVAM later bought and uh, Hope is taking good care of. It's not accidental, I think. I'm very proud of the Mobilize team and everything they did after I left was just incredible to watch. And I say it's not accidental because to me, really listening to people on the ground which is foundational to good organizing, is also foundational to any smart strategy outside of the political space. One of my sort of favorite books is The, the White Man's Burden. What's the name of the economist? William Easterly. Um, and he has this great chapter that's a mandatory organizing reading text for any early IAF organizer calling, called um, Planning Versus Searching. And the idea is, you know, when Harry Potter book sales are, you know, planned out, they don't say we're going to just put out this many books on every shelf in the country. They go out and see how are different communities responding, et cetera, et cetera. And his kind of core thesis is how do people specifically in the international development world take that same approach of really listening to the on the ground knowledge and expertise and subtleties. Um, And that's what we did at, at Mobilize was listen to volunteers on the ground, listen to staff on the ground, and that informed product, that informed, you know, the way that engineers tinkered with different pieces. And I think that's why it's it's been such an amazing company. I want to hear about your time at Planned Parenthood, which was, uh, I don't know, about four years, right? Yep, that's about right. Yeah. Give me a quick view into what you were doing there. Sure. Um, so I started as their organizing director. Um, and so that meant I was working in the 2018 cycle with Planned Parenthood affiliates around the country, their local C4 arms, um, and getting them involved in supporting campaigns directly in a way that was really new for Planned Parenthood. And I say new, Planned Parenthood Action Fund has done tons of electoral work for many, many years, but it's mostly been independent expenditures. Uh, And so part of what my role was, was how do we get people to actually wear their pink t-shirts and bring out their local volunteers directly to campaigns offices, not only because campaigns need that support, but also because when it comes to issue organizing, so much of what informs a a candidate whose top issue may not be reproductive freedom, how do you push them? And part of that accountability work starts in an election. And so if they see that every weekend, the reason that they had a successful canvas is because you know, a couple hundred people in pink t-shirts showed up and knocked on doors for them. Well, that's going to stick with them uh, when it comes to taking a tough vote. And so, um, so as an organizing director, 
I was, you know, working with our um, local C4s across the country uh, to experiment with how to scale that work. And then after the 2018 cycle, I shifted over to the political team. And that's where um, I focused on organizing in the Beltway. And so organized money uh, to make sure that campaigns um, were funded in the ways that they ought to be, but also working with campaign consultants, finance folks, et cetera, people who are really influential on campaigns, but sometimes need a little nudge on how much to prioritize an issue. That was a big part of, of my role and also exposing our activists around the country to the stories of candidates that they may only know about from a tweet or from a mailer or from whatever, and may not know that a lot of candidates are former Planned Parenthood patients, have gone through the same things that patients on the ground have gone through. So anyway, that was a, a big part of my role was, was figuring that all out. It is a rough time for people who care about some of the things that totally. Planned Parenthood cares about. Totally. It's, a, it's an awful time. And I think part of what is um, particularly awful about it is, is it's like watching a train crash in slow motion um, of this is the result of 40 years of work. Anyone in the repro movement can tell you they saw this coming. And it's that much more frustrating to see this sort of fever pitch. It's 40 years of organizing and a real focus on judges. and But it's also just the narrowest of defeats that we've suffered, like the 2000 election and the 2016 election, and just the consequences of not getting one Supreme Court judge under Obama getting cheated out of it or or Trump getting the his good fortune of getting three when like, you know, when when the Democrats are not getting him, like Carter got zero in one term. It's just they have gotten pretty fortunate on the other side to thread that needle and and sort of dominate the Supreme Court now six to three. Totally. I return to that's why we need to organize all the time because there are moments of good fortune on their side. There's also moments when the stars align on our side. But if we haven't done the work and the power building to sort of set the foundation, then we can't take advantage of those moments. And I think, you know, to me, the story of Georgia is that story of this past election cycle of, you know, if organizers had not been working their tails off for a really long time in Georgia, before John Ossoff, before Raphael Warnock, doing that really long-term work. If Stacey Abrams hadn't run and run an amazing campaign, then the possibility of getting a Senate majority wouldn't have been an option to us. And so anyway, so I, I think- it's, it's a whole team effort and it's from bottom up and top down and sideways. It's totally, just, totally, totally. All of the yeah, above. Yep. I talked to a lot of people who have- come out of the campaign and organizing world and landed in government. I've always assiduously avoided that. <laughs> How was it for you? I joke that um, the uh, world of Planned Parenthood and the world of the Treasury Department uh, have no overlap besides that I worked at both of them. Like they are just could not be more different culturally. But I really love my time at Treasury. Any new workplace is tough during a pandemic, but you know, for me, first of all, what drew me there was the scale of the American Rescue Plan um, was something that I imagined from my earliest days of thinking about problems in our country and inequalities. We're into trillions. In the trillions, yeah. 
Um, and not just in the trillions, but also like really thinking in bold ways about ending childhood poverty, you know, and I don't need to tell you this, but, you know, the child tax credit and cutting childhood poverty by 30% in less than a year. I mean, that is something advocates have been fighting for, for, you know, a generation. And so the and it's a demonstration, even if we haven't continued it. Totally, right? totally. Yeah. So much more work ahead. But all that attracted me in and I, you know, I'm an organizer, so I'm always, I'm by nature skeptical of government. And so I was skeptical of, you know, on the inside, am I just going to be fighting everyone? Am I just going to have to sharpen my elbows a little bit? And I, you know, met with all these policy leads in charge of the implementation of all these, you know, billions of dollars for each, each vertical. And they were just really visionary, thoughtful experts who I didn't have to push because when I said, you know, we should bring activists on this issue into the Treasury Department to think with us about this, the question was, you know, what week should we do that? It was not a, a resistance to that. I mean, the Treasury Department of all of the uh, parts of the federal government uh, that we see from the outside is one of the most, it feels like the, the most impenetrable. And so to see that kind of really, really thoughtful work happening there, um, was inspiring. And then the flip side of that was I would see my colleagues working day and night, you know, insane hours to get things done only to be blocked by the Pennsylvania legislature saying, we don't want to spend our COVID dollars, even though these billions of dollars could help families because we have a democratic governor. And so why don't we wait until after the election then we'll have a Republican governor. And so we'll be able to use these dollars in ways that better serve the Republican agenda. And so this just cynical politics that we were seeing in the states was directly in the way of these really visionary policy leaders of being able to get things done. I didn't imagine leaving the administration as quickly as I did, but for me, it was um, every day was um, sort of increasing my motivation to get back out into elections because I want my colleagues in the Treasury Department to have the opportunity to do all of the things that they are trying so hard to do. And right now, this landscape is just so tough for them to navigate. I wish that people better understood how much difference it makes who's running these departments and who is staffing these departments, because it makes a difference in millions of lives. I think people are a little divorced from and have been taught to be divorced from or skeptical of the big institutions that actually are trying to help them when they're run well. Totally. And that the federal government relies on really strong partners at the state, at the local, at the tribal, at the, you know, at the territorial level. And those folks rely on the activists and the advocates and the policy folks on the ground. And it's a symbiotic relationship. One side just can't do well without an ally on the other. And so when there's, when one slice of it is not working, if you either don't have an ally in the federal government or you don't have a strong partner in the state, or the partner in the state can't lean on strong activist networks to help them reach the right folks. Like a huge part of our work on the child tax credit was how do we work with states, localities, tribes, but also with the United Ways, with the YMCAs, that when we want to get a flyer out to millions of people about how to sign up for this thing, they have the ability to get that work done. And so, so much of this work is there's a whole of government approach, but there has to be a sort of symbiotic relationship on the outside for things to be effective. 
What's the story about how you reconnect with Swing Left and become the new ED? I was in the the Treasury Department planning on at least another year of work, but um, but starting to get more and more anxious about the landscape that we were just talking about of how tough things are going to be after the midterms. And it was feeling increasingly like what I didn't want was to be working with my colleagues to staff a bunch of you know, Benghazi style hearings for Secretary Yellen, what I wanted to do was to allow Secretary Yellen to actually do the big, bold things that she's here to do. My electoral itch was uh, in need of being scratched. And I figured that I would wait till after the midterms. But when this role opened up at Swing Left, I've just really, from the very beginning of Swing Left's existence, I viewed it as a place where not only does my love for organizing and investing in grassroots remain front and center in all the work, but it's also a place where I think that there's an innovative um, and edgy approach that Swing Left has in terms of technology is not always great on campaigns. You know, the way that we message on campaigns is not always that resonant to volunteers. And Swing Left has been so innovative in those ways that I figured, you know, I had to throw my hat in the ring and here we are. I interviewed Ethan, who was one of the founders back, I think, in 2017. I don't know that everybody knows Swing Left or what it does or how big it is. So can you just give the quick sketch of where that organization is now, its mission and potential impact? So for folks who are unfamiliar with Swing Left, uh, it's an organization that was started in 2017, very soon after the 2016 election. And in its earliest days, uh, Swing Left was uh, about getting grassroots volunteers and donors, the sort of pathway to the highest impact house races, because such an overwhelming number of us who really care about the future of this country live in uh, in blue areas where it may feel tough to figure out how to get involved, but almost all of us live within a short drive or short distance from uh, a swing district. And so um, the earliest days where the focus was, and Swing Left played a pivotal role in the 2018 election in getting grassroots leaders across the country to go out and knock on doors, send texts, donate to those really high priority races. And since then, Swing Left has remained laser focused on how to get folks connected to the highest impact races. But we've expanded the portfolio to include the Senate, governor's races, and state legislative races. So this year, we are targeting 55 House races, seven Senate races across 26 states, and then six gubernatorial races in seven states where we're targeting state legislative races. It's a bigger map. It's a more complicated map. And that is because all of those races are so critical for our ability to actually get things done on the issues we care about. When you say targeting a race, what does that mean? What what actually happens? Yeah. So we've got a brilliant team that is doing constant analysis of where are the places where if a volunteer takes action, whether that action is going out and knocking on doors, whether it's hosting a fundraiser, whether it's giving 50 bucks, whether it's writing a few letters to voters from their couch, whatever the action may be, where are the places where those actions actually have the ability to move the needle in an election? So the big blue and red districts and states are off the map. And then within the purple ones, many of us who've been active for the past few years know the feeling of 
when you donate 50 bucks to a race and then you see, oh, wait, this race actually has millions and millions of dollars more than they can spend. And so at Swing Left, a big focal point as part of the engagement with volunteers and, and folks who may not have a lot of time to do all the research is to say, if you've got 50 bucks, this is the race where it's going to make the biggest difference at this particular moment in the cycle. This is the place that is closest to you where you can have the biggest impact. And that changes in real time. So our targeting team is constantly informing that map and the website is constantly updating as information evolves. So how big is this team and and your budget? I want to say we've got 40 folks total that ebbs and flows throughout the cycle, but some of those folks might be fellows. Whenever you assume the leadership of any kind of organization, I think you bring that experience and you bring some theories, I think, about uh, how you want to run, how you want to run it, how do you want to manage it, a vision for where you want to take it. I think I'm sure that you you think back to some of the people that you've worked for. Can you talk a little bit about who you might model yourself after and what theories you've developed about leadership that apply? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. At the highest level, before going into some of the amazing mentors I've I've had along the the journey, what is exciting about Swing Left and the reason I wanted to come here specifically in my first, you know, my first time leading an organization, it is urgent that we think big and bold about uh, the issues that are before us. And so I wanted to be in a place where both as the leader of the organization and also as a manager of staff, trying things and experimenting would be valued and rewarded and welcomed. And that is culturally central to what Swing Left's organizational you know, brand and culture is every day. And so that's just at the highest level. I think that we don't have everything figured out as a progressive movement. If we did, we'd be you know, winning a lot more things. And so we've got to try stuff. We've got to continue improving the things that are working. And we also have to try new things that never been tried before. So you know, Swing Left acquired an organization called Vote Forward, which was on the cutting edge of doing a lot of testing on the impact of letter writing and seeing whether letter writing could move the needle on elections and didn't just sort of assume that it worked because people did it, but rather did RCTs, really tested whether that worked or not. And now that is a central part of the, the sort of toolkit of swing left action. So just overall, I think trying things, and that includes not getting everything right right away, is fundamental to my vision of what a good organization is, and also what strong leadership is, whether that's at the top or at the bottom of an organization. I had interviewed Scott Foreman, who I think is Vote Forward. Is he with you? Yes, he is. He's still leading Vote Forward. And yeah, we're really excited about all the things he has planned for the cycle. So you brought in Flippable at one point. Were there any other uh, organizations that have come into Swing Left along the way? Not besides Flippable and Vote Forward. And I think part of what... um, you know, uh, uh, obviously I was not in the organization at the time, but from um, all the stories that I've told, I think a, a central motivator there was how do we, from a volunteer experience standpoint, folks want to, they've got limited time, they've got families, they've got jobs, they've got stuff going on. How do they have the biggest impact and where do they go for that? And there are different ways to have an impact depending on where your passions are. Um, but flippable and swing left were sort of two sides of the coin of if you wanted to get involved in the 
federal side of things, you could go to Swing Left. On the state side, uh, specifically for fundraising, you could go to Flippable. And so there was a really complementary dynamic there of, well, some folks want to do both. So why not go to one place? Um, and so the teams integrated together. One of the co-founders of Flippable is still on the Swing Left board. Is Catherine Vaughn still around? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly yeah. Right. yeah. And then same with Vote Forward of, you know, letter writing is a tactic that Vote Forward innovated on um, sort of how to scale letter writing as a tactic on campaigns and then also led the RCT and the testing for whether it had an impact and how much of an impact. And so as swing left groups and leaders across the country want to figure out what they can do that makes a difference. I love knocking on doors. I think it's amazing. If I wanted to take action, it's storming outside my window in DC. I also would live, you know, a long drive uh, from uh, a district where I could knock on a door, but I could write a letter right now. And so letter writing is part of the, the acquisition of Vote Forward was through you know, and understanding that folks want to be able to take a diversity of actions and letter writing is a, is a critical part of that toolkit. One of the challenges, I assume, of any executive director is to pay the people that you've got on staff and hopefully find money for more. What is the source of funds typically for Swing Left? I, I got the sense that there were grants from bigger organizations or big donors as well as small donors, but what's the mix now and what are you aiming for? Yeah. So um, there are three buckets of where we fundraise. One is, as you mentioned, the fundraising for the organization to be able to not just hire supremely talented staff across marketing and organizing and political and engineering and product and all these other really, really critical work streams to make that volunteer experience as seamless as possible, but also for things like Fellows that are, um, you know, active on college campuses who want to order pizza to get their group together, like that funding has to come from somewhere. And so that's the first bucket that we've raised for. The second is we've raised more than $40 million for Democratic candidates and civic organizations. And that is a second bucket of when folks, like we talked about, don't know where to give to have the biggest impact. Those pass through swing left. So we say this House district this you know, Senate race is where your 50 bucks is going to go the furthest. And then the third is to vote forward, um, which we talked about. And that's um, a mix of C3 and C4 um, donations to support that letter writing. And most of that funding, frankly, goes to postage to send those letters. Which is so that, that's where it's going. Where's it coming from? So a mix of small dollar grassroots donations are fundamental to not just the launch of Swing Left and how the organization first came about, but donations on our website and to our emails remain really central uh, to the organization's budget. In 2018, uh, most of the grassroots fundraising, um, about 50% of it went to races determined by just 5% or less. Um, and an overwhelming number of those grassroots donations are coming into the organization as well. Um, there are also major donors who, who contribute. There are also you know, foundations on the C3 side who donate. And it's all folks who really believe in the mission of making sure that um, people outside of uh, the Beltway are front and center in, uh, in the process of winning elections through grassroots activism. Swing Left does overlap with a lot of existing organizations in the space, including the DCCC and the DLC and other groups that spend on these races and do targeting. Can you explain what is different or additive about Swing Left and why it's important to, to have it in the ecosystem? 
Absolutely. So first and foremost, it's critical that we work really closely together with the committees. Um, and it doesn't mean that we always will have the exact same targeting or the exact same focal points, but we have to work together in an ecosystem in service of winning these races and, you know, either protecting or expanding our majorities, depending on, or building new majorities in the case of state legislatures. So that's, that's first and foremost. Second, you know, committees do a lot. They find candidates, they help candidates find their staff. They help them, you know, figure out the right vendors to work with for ads and for mail and for all sorts of things. They help them with messaging research, with opposition research, with so much stuff. And these committees have all sorts of uh, talented staff focused on all of those different verticals. But while they do have organizing teams, those organizing teams rely on organizations on the outside to bring the funnel of volunteers into those races. And so when Swing Left volunteers go to knock on doors for Christy Smith, they may be walking into a field office that is staffed by a DCCC staff member, or they may be walking into a field office where the DCCC helped find a great organizing director to help run that, that office. So these are all sort of symbiotic relationships. But what Swing Left is doing is saying when, you know, the organizing director is trying to do outreach to day one of a, of a, uh, of a general election, get people to go out and knock on doors, there's going to be a full office. And that office is full because a swing left volunteer leader in Los Angeles has brought a bus full of volunteers over. And I think actually in this specific example, Christy Smith, I think they said folks in LA reported out that they had about uh, 80 some odd folks knocking on doors just last weekend. So this is not a, a fake example. This is a very real example of that is the kind of work that swing left is doing. And that is something that the committee's hopefully really uh, appreciate. I think that they do, but also that we all will depend on each other for playing really critical roles on all sides of what makes a winning campaign one that, you know, gets gets a candidate across the finish line. Can you give me a sense of how we're doing at the, this point in this cycle compared to the last two in the swing left world? Like, in terms of the numbers of volunteers, the activity, the motivation, what indicators do you have? Where are we compared to before? I'm sitting here worrying. Yeah, I think a lot of us are sitting at our computers worrying. I you know, certainly was counting myself in that category, but I have had the great luck of getting to see some of the volunteer numbers for Swing Left. And what is giving me a lot of hope is that volunteers are as energized and taking in aggregate, a higher number of actions at this point in the cycle than they did in 2018. So that to me is, it's not just hopeful because I like big numbers of volunteers and that is great in and of itself, but it's also that, you know, I think that- It might make a difference. (laughs) It will absolutely make a difference. And it is really easy when we are, you know, sitting and doom scrolling on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever the case may be, to read a bad poll, to read a tough article and to say, you know what, I'm not going to take action. This is this is hopeless. Like the deck is stacked against us. And what's really inspiring to me and gives me a lot of hope about Swing Left volunteers is they just haven't stopped. Like they are taking actions in the same numbers as 2018 when every news story at this point in the cycle was about grassroots momentum. And that grassroots momentum is still there. That makes me really hopeful about what's possible not just this midterm cycle, um, which is going to be really hard. I mean, I'm not going to lie that this is not going to be an easy cycle. But if we can maintain that grassroots momentum 
that's not just a, a motivator or that doesn't just make me hopeful about what's possible in terms of a field margin. It also makes me hopeful that people are very clear that Republicans have gone way across any line of what we all thought was possible on every issue that we care about, and that it is pissing off our side in the ways that it ought to, but also that is pissing us off in ways that is productive in terms of we're going to be organizing for the next, you know, not just 100 plus days, but for the next 40 years to win back all of the things that we've lost. I'm going to assume that a few of your staff, some of your volunteers, and some people who want to figure out how to help in 2022 are going to hear this, I'm hoping. What would you like them to know about you as the new executive director that you haven't said already? In introducing yourself, what else should they hear from you? It's a really good question. You know, I think I think the the biggest thing I'd say to existing volunteers and staff is the only reason I'm joining Swing Left is because I believe that this work is not only incredibly motivating and inspirational to me as someone who's observed the work from the outside, but I think that it has the potential to grow exponentially over these next few years and become a place, not just where we are winning elections and where I'm able to look at a dashboard of all the shift numbers, you know, for folks, shift numbers may be too inside Beltway, you know, the number of doors that were knocked by volunteers and the number of letters that were sent and, and so on. All of that, I think we can scale in, in, in ways that are continuing on the trajectory this organization has been on that have long inspired me. I also think something that has attracted me to this work is the small D democratic work that uh, Swing Left volunteers have been doing. And I think that that is um, one of the big, like a lot of places are doing big numbers, but you go to Swing Left groups and volunteers are sitting together and figuring out the small D democratic process of who's going to lead their group. How are they going to put together an agenda for a meeting? How often are they going to meet? And that stuff may feel logistical, but it is actually, I mean, this, de Tocqueville talked about the, the mores and habits of democratic life uh, and as he you know, observed uh, our early democracy in, in New England. And that is the stuff, learning how to speak in public to your group of 20 group leaders, learning how to call your friends to tell them to do something they've never done before. That feels as foundational and as inspirational to me about what Swing Left does as the raw numbers of how many doors are knocked or dollars are are raised. I also think, you know, to continue the medical metaphor that we had earlier, it is part of the antibodies to authoritarianism. It is the exercise of grassroots democracy that those habits are deeply, they are deeply embedded in this country. And we have to continue to exercise those muscles or they will waste away. Absolutely. And, you know, they've got to become habits. And I think they have become habits for a lot of folks in the swing left family and community, but they need to be habits for many more people who are still not a part of this community because It's the same thing of, uh, I'm a very bad tennis player. So I'll use a very, you know, an example of, I have not picked up a tennis racket in, I don't know how many years. If I try to swing really fast, I'm probably going to pull a muscle because I haven't done any exercise in who knows how many weeks. But if I'm practicing that swing on a regular basis, I don't know that I'll be a great tennis player, but I'll be able to get the ball over the net, you know? And I think that that is 
part of the process is we can't just swing really hard, you know, right before an election and then not pick up that racket again to use this, you know, terrible. And we need to swing left, right? Not we need to swing left. Exactly. 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 (laughs) Um, And we have to, you know, practice enough that it becomes second nature and it becomes a sort of micro movement rather than trying to remember how to swing that racket to the left, uh, you know, for the first time in, in four years. Is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? Hmm. I don't think so. How can people get involved if they want to? Yes. So for folks who are looking to get involved for the first time or to renew their activism, they can go to swingleft.org and they can just type in their zip code on the map that pops up. And that will both show them how they can get involved and where they can get involved. And as soon as they do, they'll see it's really easy. And whether you have five minutes or many hours a week, or whether you have $5 or many hundreds of thousands of dollars, there are ways for every single person to get involved at any level. Uh, And I hope that you'll start today. Well, I'm delighted to have the chance to get to know you. And I wish you the best of luck in an important job over the next while. Likewise, and thanks for all the amazing things that you've done over the years uh, in so many aspects of uh, what make our democratic process, small D and big D democratic process, as strong as it is today and excited that you're still in the fight to make it even better. Thanks much. That was Yasmin Raji. She is at swingleft.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.